This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, among our virus headlines, we talked about some of them, about the U.S. rising to the top of Bloomberg's COVID resilience ranking for the first time. It's really a measure that indicates how well countries are handling the pandemic. European nations are also moving higher on the list as they open for the summer. But we did report that uh, the U.K. today uh, saying that it had the most new COVID cases since January, so they continue to struggle through. Here with how, though, the healthcare system continues to grapple with the pandemic, Janet Elkin. She's president and CEO at Icon Medical Network. She joins us on the phone from Dallas, Texas. Janet, nice to have you here on this Monday. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be here, Carol. Well, tell me a little bit about what you are seeing when it comes to healthcare systems uh, dealing with the pandemic still, but getting a little bit more back to normal, but also as you know, other medical needs arise, what does that mean for demand for healthcare workers? Well, for healthcare workers overall, obviously, there's a high demand. Um, we saw for nursing during the, I guess, the height. Hopefully, it was the height of the pandemic, but now we're seeing physician staffing really worrying back. Obviously, people were not going to the doctor unless they had to, and really putting off surgeries, but. What was already high in demand to begin with, just really not enough physicians, is causing almost really a crisis point, with, especially with more physicians retiring now. Well, and that's interesting. Where are we kind of generally speaking in the United States uh, when it comes to um, people wanting to be doctors? Because we know we've seen the ebbs and flows here. Well, it's not, I think it's not so much a question of them wanting to become doctors, it's that they want a different life, different lifestyle. Hmm. You know, the, um, the AMA recently published something that for the first time ever, less than half of all active physicians are not working in the smaller private practices. They've moved like everything else, right, to the large systems because it's just too expensive for someone in private practice. That's making a real demand difference because I think the loyalty is different when it's not like just someone in a one person shop, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so we're finding that there's, they want more choices and they want a more flexible lifestyle like everybody else. Does that mean that they're gravitating or continuing to gravitate towards major cities? And what does that do for rural communities? I'm just curious about that. Well, it's always been difficult, obviously, yeah. for the rural communities, right? Now, I think even more so. Um, we recently did something because we staff temporary um, Physicians for mm-hmm. physicians in Arizona, where there was a very rural town, they opened up a new mine, which meant they doubled the population in just a few weeks. So between that and the pandemic, we had to get people, but how do you get them there? So we did a telehealth project mm-hmm. where we had overnight hospitalists that used laptops and they brought the laptop from patient to patient, but it was a way to get them served. Yeah. How's that working? How do you feel like, how do doctors, what's the feedback that you're hearing about telehealth? I think it's not obviously going to take over the industry. There's sometimes where you have to lay hands on people, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to actually see them. But I do think that in some areas where we have such critical shortages, like psychiatrists, where I'm sure we've all read the articles about the demand now more than ever for mental health services, that's an area where you also really could use more telehealth. And I think it's a way of 
trying to be effective and efficient and just get more people taken care of wherever they live. Yeah, I know a fair amount of people just anecdotally that when it especially came to mental well-beings that for the first time, because it was much more accessible in many ways and easier to mm-hmm. reach out to a therapist. And I do wonder if the tables have really or things have really shifted, especially when it comes to psychiatry and mental well-being in terms of professionals being able to reach a, a kind of a wider swath of our population. I think you're right, and they need to, because they're just, psychiatry's been in demand for a long time, but now Mm -hmm. we cannot keep up with the demand for assignments for our psychiatrists, because, and no one can, it's just that, it's just that critical, it really, and remember also that some of the psychiatrists tend to be a little bit of an older age, and we're finding, this was amazing to me, Medscape did a survey recently that 25% of all physicians are looking to do an early retirement than they used to. And we can't afford that. Yeah, that's pretty wild. What about the the medical community that you deal with, the doctors? Are we seeing vaccinations continue to be handed out? Are we reaching those underserved areas, those rural areas? Have we we reached out there to, to the people who really do want the vaccine? Right. Well, they are. I think the supply is definitely... Um, you know, considerably better than it was. But I think regardless, um, whether it's now or post or pre-pandemic, there just are not, you know, rural areas are not often considered really desirable for physicians to want to set up a practice or go and work at a hospital. And so that continues to be an issue. Primary care is one great example of that. There just, there aren't enough, there aren't enough scholarships to be given to be able to get the folks there. And that's where really temporary staffing of Mm. physicians helps dramatically. It's interesting. I don't often think about temporary staffing when it comes to doctors. You just assume that they're all full-time positions at at hospitals or healthcare, but it's not the way it works. Just got about 30 seconds left. Sure. No, there's more demand for temporary, and we're seeing it either new grads out of residency, middle career, mm-hmm. and, and doctors that are thinking about retiring. What's they going? Have more charges. Hey, one last question, just a few seconds. Wages mm-hmm. are sure. wages going up for doctors? Wages are in certain specialties: um, psychiatry, cardiology, surgery. Yep. All right. Good to know. Hey, great to check in with you. Janet Elkin. She's president and CEO of Icon Medical Network on the phone from Dallas, Texas. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. I mentioned this was the most read story. It is the most read story on the Bloomberg on this Monday. It's about President Biden targeting two weapons that the richest one-tenth of one percent use to avoid taxes. So let's find out exactly what's going on. Bloomberg News senior tax reporter Allison Versprill is on the phone from Washington, D.C. Allison, so what exactly are we talking about? So we're talking about the, you know, details of the Biden proposals that were released late last month. You know, I think at first people kind of needed some time to dig through these. But on close inspection, you know, we learned that the Biden administration's plans would, you know, essentially dismantle these two popular planning techniques. Um, We have one that's called a dynasty trust. Essentially, you can set these up and they aren't, you know, incurring gift estate or generation skipping taxes for you know, multiple generations. Uh, so the Biden plan would actually charge a capital gains tax on appreciated assets in these trusts every 90 years. Um, but because of the way it's drafted, we could see taxes come due as early as December 2030. And then we also have language that would charge capital gains taxes when property is transferred into and out of trust. And in talking with the Treasury official, you know, this is aimed specifically at this 
very common tool, um, if not complicated tool, known as the intentionally defective grantor trust. Uh, so as people start... It's a great name. This, <laughs> yes, yeah, it's definitely a long name, definitely an estate planning type, uh, type name. Um, but, you know, people have started to become really concerned uh, about some of this language. How did we kind of miss this earlier? Well, you know, the broad strokes of the outline that the president was talking about mm. didn't specifically go into how trusts were impacted. And then even getting into the Green Book language, some of it's a little bit vague. I think the dynasty trust portion was um, a bit more obvious than some of this other language on transfers. And, you know, I'm told that the the second piece of that could affect even beyond, um, you know, these intentionally defective trusts that I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, But we'll have to see how kind of the legislation is drafted and, you know, IRS regs even further beyond that. You write in your reporting, Allison, I mean, it's not just a U.S. thing. We're seeing it around the globe where governments are looking, countries are looking to implement new taxes on capital gains, inheritance, basically go after the wealthy when it comes to paying maybe a greater share, a fairer share that some might argue of taxes. No, that's absolutely right. You know, we see these in uh, Stockholm, we see these in other countries. And I think the idea here is that obviously COVID-19 has, um, you know, poked these massive holes in government budgets. And during that time, uh, especially in the U.S., you saw that the rich weren't really necessarily impacted like the rest of, uh, you know, like the rest of the country. So this has definitely been a priority in the U.S. It's definitely a priority across across the globe. All right. So what's going on with all the financial advisors to the wealthy? Are they like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> Trying to figure it out. Like, what? what's the feedback? Because there's a great quote in your story, one lawyer um, I guess that advises uh, individuals or a tax lawyer, what they're doing is creating a whole new tax regime. And it sounds like that's what's going on. So, you know, if enacted, I think people are, are starting to say that they would really have to reconsider the techniques they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this makes planning go away. There are always going to be smart planners that can help people get around their taxes. Right. Um, but, but these are things that have become really popular in recent years. And so, you know, essentially, people will question, is it worth using this specific tool that I've, I've had in my arsenal for, uh, for the last several decades? And you and had... So there's definitely consideration of that. Yep. Two, two key words. You said, if enacted, right? The final language, as we know, in any kind of bill or legislation, I mean, ultimately, it's up to Congress how they lay it out. Definitely. And, you know, we've already seen, so we have this infrastructure package that's now moving along that... Uh, would be bipartisan that doesn't have any of these tax increases in it. Um, there has been discussion that Democrats would pursue in the budget sort of their own standalone package that would, um, you know, make some of these tax increases along party lines, um, which has obviously created some controversy. But you have to get essentially everyone, you know, every Democratic vote in the Senate. Um, there's not a huge margin in the House. And mm. so... It still remains to be seen, you know, if this gets enacted, if this gets paired back at all. Uh, so we'll just have to see how the conversation moves forward. Hey, just 15 seconds here. How quickly does it move forward? Is it before the summer, before the end of the year? Just is there a bit of a timeline? Just quickly. I would not anticipate if we're talking about reconciliation, mm. that usually starts coming together around the fall. I mean, okay. you might have some things beginning to crystallize or discussions are definitely going to be happening this summer, but you have to right. consider there's the recess in August. Got it. Um, 
So I see most of the action coming in the fall. All right. Good to know. We'll put that on our calendars. Uh, Allison Versprill, thank you so much. Senior tax reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, it's a Bloomberg exclusive looking at the U.S. unemployment benefits given out during the pandemic. Who got them really? That story from Bloomberg News senior trade and globalization reporter Sean Don, and he joins us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C., along with Business Week editor Joel Weber in our interactive broker studio in New York. This is such an important story, especially with the debate about why workers aren't coming back, Joel, because they're getting lots of benefits. This story really looks into the numbers. And, it, and it's been one that I think culturally we've been aware of for a while, but what Sean Donnan and Reed Pickert um, did in this particular issue uh, was go even bigger. Uh, and the number that they came out up with was that there are at least 9 million Americans who were thrown out of work by the pandemic and they didn't receive unemployment benefits um, despite there being billions, trillions of dollars that flowed into the system. Right. And as they were reporting that, obviously that big of a number sticks out to you, and then you start to wonder why. So, so Sean, bring you in here. Why? What happened? What went wrong? Well, I mean, the answer is that, and we've all learned this in the, in, in the last year, is that the unemployment system in the United States is just in really lousy shape. And it's everything from being overloaded with an unprecedented amount of claims or, uh, as I like to think of, people reaching out for, for help um, and uh, also old IT uh, systems and just trying to, to, to process these applications and also getting caught up in this question of fraud that's been hanging over the system uh, as well there. There's been a, a lot of, you know, when you dig into the system, a lot of state officials talk about uh, the high number of fraudulent claims that they've seen, but you scratch the surface a little bit and you discover there's also a lot of innocent people who've been uh, accused of fraud. I, look, I was on the phone this morning with someone who reached out to me after uh, after seeing our story and who says, you know, they've been waiting six weeks weeks uh, for their latest uh, unemployment benefits after having uh, after getting benefits for without any problem for most of the, the last year uh, and the reason is that uh, the state of Maryland says they can't verify uh, their identity even though this person has sent all sorts of IDs uh, their way well, so it, it's just it's a system that's overloaded but it's a system that also in a lot of places seems to be kind of biased towards assuming that someone reaching out for help may not always be doing so, uh, you know, with uh, the right intentions. What's great about this story by you and Reed, Sean, is that right? we often see headlines, we see numbers, but we forget that there are people behind those numbers. Take us to either Barb's story or Ray's story. You actually get into their details. Yeah, look, I, I just got an email in the last hour from Barb Ashbrook as well in Indiana. And Barb is like a lot of people in this country in that she kind of cobbles together a living on a couple of different uh, part-time jobs. Uh, before the pandemic, she worked 20 hours a week at Dollar Tree, and she worked 20 hours a week or so uh, as a uh, cashier in the food court in Eli Lilly's, uh, one of their uh, office buildings in Indianapolis. Uh, And when the pandemic hit, she lost that job in the food court because no one was going to the office anymore. She applied for unemployment and she was told that she wasn't eligible for unemployment because she made more than $121 a week at 
a Dollar Tree where she worked as a cashier. And that is more than she would have received in benefits from the state of Indiana just to make up for her lost income at the food court job. Now, you just got to back up for a second there. Imagine trying to exist on $121 a week, uh, first of all. Second of all, uh, the benefits that she would have been entitled to with the federal top-up at the time would have been more like $720 a week. That would have completely changed Barb Ashbrook's experience in this pandemic. And then it, it kind of gets almost into a, a, a weird Kafkaesque tale where a few months after she was denied benefits, all of a sudden some money turned up in her bank account from the state of Indiana. Um, and she sent most of it back right away. It took the state a couple of months to acknowledge that. And now they've accused her of being overpaid these benefits. And uh, at one point in March, they were threatening to garnish her wages and her tax returns. Um, and she's, you know, she reached out for help and she didn't get the help she needed. And then she got caught up in this bureaucratic nightmare. And, you know, the message in her email just an hour ago to me was, you know, I'm never going to apply for unemployment benefits mm. again. That's the big lesson from here is that there's no one there to help me. Uh, another another lesson or insight I'm interested in is you mentioned Indiana there, Sean. And it really reveals what a patchwork quilt of a country we have because every state has its own systems and its own problems that they have to wrestle with here what what did you learn on that front how how, uh inconsistent are the states look i mean there's huge inconsistency in in the states and this is the you know the grand bargain that was struck in the new deal was for the states to control a lot of how unemployment benefits are paid and that means they get to decide how much is paid on 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 a weekly basis so you have some states that will pay you a hundred bucks or so uh, a week up to eight hundred dollars a week in the maximum level in massachusetts that's even before this federal top-up that we've had uh, during the pandemic and then you have also states that are incredibly strict in terms of who they will give benefits to if you lived in arizona and you worked 30 hours a week at the minimum wage job, you would not be eligible for unemployment benefits because you would not hit their minimum income threshold. In Indiana, you know, a third of the people who applied for benefits in that state uh, did not receive any benefits. So what you're, I always think about when you do something like this, and you guys went through a ton of data, uh, it's not always perfect, right? Because the reporting isn't always perfect. Um, Where's the problem? Is it that we need federal guidelines on this or what do we need what is the problem how do we fix this because we're we're going to have another crisis yeah no absolutely and i think that's the that's the real thing that's exposed here is that the system that we have is too narrow in in terms of who it defines uh as being eligible for benefits Mm. Uh, so we need to think about how the economy has changed and we need to broaden out the system to catch more of these people who are there and we also need to understand that um we need to get this money out there to people quickly because that money has actually been hugely effective in reducing a lot of the broader economic damage that we've seen in this pandemic. This is a great way to get money out there when it works. The problem is it just doesn't work enough and for enough people. Well, it's an incredible read. And I know you guys did, like I said, going through all the data points. Sean, thank you so much. Really appreciate you bringing it to us. Sean Donnan, Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter at Bloomberg News from our bureau in D.C. Jill Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Business Week here in our interactive broker studio. Important story. 
Absolutely, and and one that you know the just the wrestle with the amount of data that they had to I wrestle. Can only imagine. It's just amazing. There is a part right at the end of the story that talks about yeah, the methodology. Like, here, here's a here's a really <laughs> hefty paragraph to understand how we actually like dealt with the numbers, which is what it's all about. All right, Joel, thanks. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We have definitely seen a leg up when it comes to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ just off their highs of the session. It really is, though... Generally speaking, a risk-off trade today, except if you happen to be in the tech space, if you happen to be a chip stock. And we know that we also saw um, some of those big tech names, specifically Facebook, pushing past its uh, $1 trillion market cap. So let's get to it, and let's talk about uh, the drive to the close. Joining us once again is uh, one of our favorite guests here, and uh, we're talking about Tom Plum. He is President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, based in Madison, Wisconsin. Joining us on the phone from there, I talk about this all the time, his Balance Fund, consistently a top performer. It has uh, beat pretty much all of its peers in the past five years, returning on average annually 15%. Forgive me, Tom. I have a ton of notes around me, and I, I couldn't find where I wanted to go. Nice to have you back with us. How are you? Oh, Carol, it's great to talk to you. It's that kind of a Monday. I'm just going to put it out there. So this marketplace, what have you been doing? Have you been buying? Have you been selling? How do you see it? Are there opportunities well, Carol, like we've talked in the past, um, the the market initially had the uh, cyclical rebound economy, and the, those were the stocks that really were performing first part of this year as they rebounded from some real significant problems caused by the pandemic. But now we're starting to see a little bit of a moderation of the growth rates that we'll see, and we're starting to discern between value companies and value traps, uh, because I think that there's a lot of areas of the economy that are still going to be stressed, they're still going to have some difficulty growing, mm-hmm. and there's going to be some companies that are going to do pretty well because um, they've weathered through this, and they've, you know, as we've talked in the past, we prefer growth stocks, but uh, the fact that some of these financials, for example, now that they're going to be able to deleverage that loan uh, quality has not deteriorated and we we see more loan demand pick up, they could actually start to become, you know, true values and see some growth in their stock prices, even from these levels. So one name you like is JP Morgan. We did have a headline uh, today that they are buying a stake in a digital bank, uh, C6, in uh, a move into Brazilian the retail space there, the retail uh, banking sector there specifically, so expanding their reach. I'm guessing you're going to be watching for some of the headlines after the close today to see what they do with that extra extra cash, cash post uh, the Fed stress test. What is, though, you're thinking about J.P. Morgan? Well, you know, basically the, 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 the best uh, company out there in the financial, the major banks that we've seen, and they have excess capital. And when we go back to the times that the bank stocks were the leaders, um, that was back in the 
80s and early 90s and even the early parts of this decade, uh, century, mm-hmm. when they were deleveraging, when they had high-quality growth and they didn't have to continually borrow more money at expensive rates. So the return of capital through dividends and through uh, stock buybacks is going to be something that's going to fuel true growth. It's one of those things that, like a Warren Buffett has always liked about certain companies like Coca-Cola, for example. Mm-hmm. It makes sense at this stage, and those type of companies that have been well capitalized, whether through this, uh, I think they can be growth stocks again. That's interesting. So, okay, so you're thinking about that, about J.P. Morgan. Another financial that you like is Discover Financial, ticker is DFS, and it's actually had a pretty nice bounce this year. It's up about 31%. You're also talking about a dividend, a five-year net growth of about 9.5%. Is it the dividend story again that you like, or what? Well, it's the it's the convergence of the reopening story mm-hmm. with the structural move to digital wallet. So, um Discover was uh, significantly impacted because a lot of their purchases are through restaurants uh, and retail. Their uh, point of fa- their point of sale, where you're in contact with the uh, person on the other end who's uh, you're buying your product from, you're at the restaurants. So the reopening of the economy is going to help them significantly. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that they uh, have real high capital ratio and then we'll be able to start to return some of that. They also have a network that uh, we think is valuable and can be used as all these uh, companies are trying to build up their digital wallets. It's a lot of financials that you like. I'm just looking through your list. MasterCard is another one. And that's, again, what, as the, com- re- the economy reopens, whether it's services, whether it's goods, people are going to be using their cards more. And especially they're going to use them at restaurants, they're going to use them for business, travel, and entertainment, and they're going to use them for cross-border transactions. Those three areas were very weak for MasterCard last year, even though they showed revenue modestly uh, increasing because of the online purchasing and things and the digital wallet that we've talked about. But we expect then to see a real cyclical rebound and they're probably going to have uh, earnings, uh, maybe even revenues, up 30% the quarter that we're in. And we're looking for the whole year for the earnings to be up almost 30%. So here's a little bit of a different company, Olo. Uh, and this is a company that had its uh, IPO earlier this year. Tell us about the thinking on this one. Well, it's online ordering. Uh, So that's what it stands for. It's the interface between the restaurants and the on-demand world. They've got, uh, they're basically Switzerland for those companies, those restaurants that uh, don't want to develop their own apps and their own interfaces. This is a company that then can put you together with DoorDash and Caviar that can get it, you combined with your ordering system on the, at the restaurant with Clover and Toast and processing your transactions. So it's wedding the, um, the person who wants to buy something, you want to go to a fast food or any type of restaurant and order your food. Uh, we've all gone there now. You see the line. You can skip the line if you've pre-ordered. Mm-hmm. That's what this company does. And uh, basically, that's the world we're in now. People are not going to sit in line to go to you know, a subway or something like that when, when they can use this app and, and get in, out, do whatever they want to do. 
Yeah, it definitely plays into what we've seen over the past year in the changing world. Hey, um, Tom, just got about 30 seconds left here. One name that, or not even a name, but you are the crypto world. We're all obsessed. And you say, don't confuse crypto technology with cryptocurrency. Just quickly explain that. Well, you know, cryptocurrency is basically, I think, somewhat of an artificially created uh, shortage story. And, you know, if you go back, you don't have to live uh, the tulip bubble, but you can go back to 25 years ago to the Beanie Babies. And you can see that when you have artificially restrained um, supply and then you have a story, it becomes a fad, it feeds on itself, but it doesn't have any real sustainable value. Yeah. It's it's difficult to think that you would actually use a Bitcoin to buy something at Starbucks that you're going to drink and it disappears an hour later. Well, it's certainly uh, something we talk about a lot. Tom, always good to check in with you. Tom Plum, he's President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.